This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Hello and welcome to the Slate Political Gap Pass for April 26th, 2018, the hardest job in the world edition. I am David Plotz of Atlas Obscura. I have kept my dear podcast co-host waiting. I'm sorry to them. I hope we're not keeping listeners waiting, but sorry to John Dickerson of CBS this morning in New York. Sorry, John. And sorry to Emily Bazelon of the New York Times Magazine. Sweating New Haven. You're getting way sorry. too, like, digging yourself. We, we're good. We're happy you're we back. Good. Happy everything's fine. On no this problem. week's Gabfest, the strange saga of Ronnie Jackson and his uh, would-be, won't-be nomination to be VA secretary and the other other nomination issues and, and cabinet issues that President Trump's cabinet and would-be cabinet members are facing. Then the Supreme Court seems set to uphold the Trump travel ban. Why do the conservative justices seem so unimpressed by the president's anti-Muslim animus expressed during his campaign? And then is the presidency impossible? We will dig into the monumental Atlantic magazine cover story by some hack, some hack named John Dickinson, Dick, 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 Dicker. Dickinson? Dickerson? Plus, we will have uh, cocktail chatter. And of course, to quick one more quick announcement for the last time, we are announcing our St. Louis show is going to be next week on Wednesday, May 2nd at the Sheldon Concert Hall in St. Louis. There are a few tickets available at slate.com slash live. It's going to be a great show. Jason Kander, the exciting political leader in Missouri, is going to join us, the former Secretary of State, the Senate candidate. And uh, we have, of course, the Missouri gubernatorial scandal to talk about. It's going to be a great show. So go to slate.com slash live to pick up one of those last few remaining tickets. We really look forward to seeing you there and already planning. In fact, if you have great ideas for things that we can do during our day in St. Louis, tweet them at us. Let us know where to go, where to eat, what to visit, where we should hang out. We'll see you there. On Thursday morning, Dr. Ronnie Jackson, presidential Dr. Ronnie Jackson, withdrew his nomination as VA secretary. Jackson was, of course, nominated a few weeks ago in a rather impulsive, quick action by our president, Donald Trump, who seemed to like Jackson, who'd been his personal physician and given him a clean bill of health at his checkup not so long ago. Jackson had no experience with the VA to speak of and no experience running a bureaucracy and no experience managing a large organization, but uh, Trump liked, liked his the cut of his jib, as it were. Jackson withdrew his nomination after reports um, came out that he did all kinds of stuff, right, Emily? Yeah. <laughs> he was Candyman, prescribing drugs sort of for folks. I don't actually hold that against him all that much, but you're not supposed to do that. He supposedly crashed a government car because he was drunk. And then he sounds like he was just a total nightmare to work for. The opioids, the handing out Percocet. Yeah, the Percocet took it over the top, I guess. The giving out ProVigil and Ambien on long trips, that seemed iffy. There was the pounding on the young female staffer's door late at night drunkenly on a 
a uh, presidential trip in 2015. The rivalry he had with another White House doctor sounded terrible. They both sounded like they behaved badly. So, John, is is this a case of a, a qualified candidate being wrongly taken down for uh, sort of personal peccadilloes that aren't really relevant, or is there something deeper going on here? I, well, I, I guess we don't know, because we don't even know if some of these charges are true. But for to me, they're actually kind of beside the point, the two bigger, larger points, which is, one, this was this was reminiscent of when President George W. Bush, although arguably he's less qualified than the analogy I'm about to make, but um, Harriet Myers? Nominated, Her- nominated Harriet Myers for the Supreme Court, because there at least is a theory, you may not agree with it, there's a theory that somebody who's not a judge can nevertheless be on the Supreme Court, and you can make an argument for how that's good and beneficial. People didn't believe that in that specific case, but at least there's a there's a theory to that was involved. Um, anyway, that turned out to be a total uh, disaster for the president, for Harriet Myers. In this case, you know, being a doctor does not mean you can manage the VA. The VA is a gargantuan management challenge. Obviously, a doctor would have lots of interesting insights, but it turns out the VA has a lot of doctors who can have interesting insights and could inform whatever you needed to do to manage it. The current problems for which the new VA secretary needs to be uh, put in place are not ones with um, are ones where somebody with management skill would have the the relevant expertise. It's funny. One of the problems for the VA is because of the hiring problems, they've been hiring. There's been some questions about the qualifications uh, for some of the for some of the hiring they've done. So it's kind of echoing it. So that was one big problem. And then the second is, um, and it seemed from the reporting to be that this was just sort of more line of sight hiring by the fres- the president, which is like, oh, he looks like a doctor. He's my doctor. Make him make him the head of the VA, just like you suggested having his personal pilot be the head of the, um, the FAA. So the second problem, it seems to me, is that the vetting was so awful um, that they were not, they, A, didn't seem to know about any of these problems, or and then B, didn't, um, you know, if there are allegations against you, um, that doesn't mean it necessarily should torpedo your job, but it means at least you should have an answer and you should have prepared the way. And this is obviously not the first time they've had problems with vetting or had the problems with kind of a slapdash approach. So it's just another way in which the chaos of the presidency, uh, this particular presidency, gets in the way of even its own objectives. Uh, so that seems um, to be the two big problems for me. Yeah, I mean, there's something so screwy about what's going on with the VA generally, because the the last VA secretary, David Shulkin, who was an Obama holdover, right? Yeah. He was the, he, he was and the, was unanimously confirmed, I believe. But, you know, Shulkin had, had uh, by the standards of this administration, he'd committed an extremely minor act of graft and corruption. But no doubt, you know, he it was a, an act of graft and corruption with, with uh, for which he deserved to be fired, as Scott Pruitt and Ben Carson probably deserved to be fired for their acts of graft and corruption. Um, and yet they re- linger on. They They're linger still on, among but, us. But because Shulkin, Shulkin represented a view of the VA, which the is not as popular among conservatives, which is that he was not so keen to privatize a bunch of, of, of its functions. And and essentially, Shulkin was sacrificed. That his his corruption was found to be was found to be a fireable offense because the Koch brothers and allies and and even people who worked for Shulkin wanted him out so that they could push the privatization agenda. And so the real like issues at at the VA have nothing to do with Ronnie Jackson and his lack of qualifications and everything to do with 
with the huge shift, the policy policy shift that's being proposed, and the the kind of personal disgracing of Ronnie Jackson is just uh, is a is a minor sideshow for what's going to be a huge remaking of this bureaucracy there. And it's and I I I mean I do feel bad for Jackson. He's somebody who who probably is a perfectly good doctor and a perfectly charismatic person who who indeed has built a great relationship with people in the White House, but. Then he just gets he just gets. But wait totally a second, hosed. he didn't. He, he let's say that some of these allegations are true, just yeah. some of them. He didn't have to put his name out there, and also right, right. No, you're right. How do you're you right. get well, to remain the personal physician of the president through two and a half administrations if you're behaving in this manner? Like the idea well, that someone who's like that- passed out drunk and has to have White House officials come in, like tiptoe in and take things they need out of your hotel room. I don't. I find that to be really mysterious. Like, wh- well, he did not seem like he should be in that job, from what we know, if it is true. Well, yeah, that's the big if, right? I mean, we also don't want a world in which somebody gets allegations thrown against them and, and they're not true, and it ends up torpedoing their life. Um, but true. the question is, uh, I thought where you were going to go with this, is how does he get to still have the job now? Because it seems like this would these would be problems you'd need to wrestle to the ground because he's a military person and then and just in keeping with what you were saying david is um you know he has had a career and um you know uh there's no suggestion that his service uh for the military and overseas uh was nothing but honorable and so by doing his by having his nomination go through in this slapdash way the administration that elevated him and the president in particular who elevated him has now by throwing him into the meat grinder without proper vetting or protection has now caused that portion of his career to be the kind of smaller port, you know, defining characteristic than, than the, than, you know, all of these allegations. It's another way in which it's not a favor, uh, to him. Um, the, well, uh, another way in which the Trump administration really, like, you know, breaks the people who yeah. it is supposedly elevating, that there's a, a real risk of taking these jobs. Can I, can I just say, though, Emily, just going back to your point, Honestly, like the fact that he got drunk a few times, that assume that much of what we have has been alleged is true. We don't know that it is. It may or may not be. But let's just assume for the sake of argument that much of it is true. I, you know, handing out Ambien and Pro Vigil of people taking presidential trips seems totally fine. That was the least of uh, it. Self-prescribing eh, or prescribing, you know, to co- cover up prescriptions. I, I know plenty of doctors who, who do that and I think they're you know, some of the ones I know are great doctors being having a drink while on a trip or even getting drunk while on a trip. Yes. OK, your job is to take care of the president. And it would be shocking if the president th- at that moment had a heart attack and you were drunk. That would be really bad. Yeah, that's uh, but, you just like but made the case but the it's, opposite direction. But it's <laughs> not that on. it's not it's, it's these do not these are these do not seem to me the, the problem with Jackson for this job was that he clearly was a terrible manager of the office. Well, that's true too. And but uh, but I, when we're but going back to his I personal think, physician role, a, getting drunk, like passing—if that's true—if you're passed out drunk when you're supposed to be available in case the president has a health emergency, come on! You don't really think that's okay? I don't think it's. A, I don't think it's okay. But well, nor do I think uh, it is. It is. But it is like the the worst sin that a doctor. You don't think it's a fireable. I don't think it's a fireable offense. I don't think it's a disqualification to run the VA. I think the disqualification to run the VA is he's never run anything. Well, 
And, All I have to and, say is I value the health and safety well, of our presidents uh, more than you do. Oh, that's not that's well, that's like one of these people who who invokes national security. Oh, like the the national security risk was profound. It's like nah, it's like not that profound. It was like a minor. Well, okay, wait, what? What I would say is that um, he, he, these two things are combined, which is to say, if he had no great, if he, he if he lacked no, I mean, he has a staff of seventy, um, and so he wasn't. You know, there's reporting he wasn't a great manager, but even if he was a pretty good manager of 70, it's a huge leap to go. And his main job, you know, uh, would have been management. And so, OK, he hasn't doesn't have the relevant experience, but he's a great doctor. That could be an argument you could make, except that these go to whether he was a good doctor or not. So it kind of undermines uh, kind of the only thing he had like he had to stand on I mean, separate I and apart I- from whether it undermines what a doctor actually does. I honestly feel like laying out the many ways in which Ronnie Jackson was not the right person for this job is like shooting fish in a barrel. Like, it's not hard to see. And so to me, what is actually... Are you saying he was drunk when he was shooting the fish? <laughs> I mean, what's wrong with being drunk when you're shooting the fish? There's no problem. There's no problem. It's a small barrel. All right. But you just like turned my metaphor it's around, which is fine. Single, it wasn't that good a metaphor. It, when you have single barrel before shooting a small barrel, it gets to be a barrel of trouble. <laughs> All right. But I had an actual point I was going to make, and it is this. What I actually think this is all sort of a sideshow, but there is something that interests me here. And it's because of the chaos and the slapdash and the like, oh, you're my doctor, you're my pilot, I'll pick you to run a major agency because of this lurching way in which Trump is making appointments. We're watching Washington have to go through this very... Um, this weird theatrics in which privately Republicans do not want Ronnie Jackson to be the head of the VA, but publicly after John Tester, the ranking Democrat on the relevant committee, comes out with these allegations, Trump turns this into another set of, you know, political, another it turns it into political red meat of like the Democrats are railroading this guy and this is all about my fighting for my people as opposed to any kind of um, common, shared, normal understanding of basic standards. And then, you know, a few Republicans have spoken up and I'm sure they're relieved he's out of there. But there isn't the uh, the um, bipartisan um reaffirming of these norms in this broad way that really rejects Trump's notion. And instead, until the moment that Jackson withdraws, you have this question of like, okay, so how, where's the line? Like, how low are you going to drag these Republicans in Congress down with you? Because how how low are you going to make them go in supporting you? I've been feeling this way about Scott Pruitt, too, as more and more news dribbles out. Like, now we have his main sponsor, Oklahoma Senator, what's his name? Jim Inhofe. Is that how you say that? Yeah. Yeah. Oklahoma Senator Jim Inhofe expressing some reservations. But this is after so many allegations about Pruitt's spending and his ethical lapses. It's it's distressing to me to watch Washington kind of sink to this level. But I think there is something so Trumpian. Well, let me. All right. Let me throw it back at you, Emily, though, and take the case of Mike Pompeo, the CIA director who President Trump has nominated to be secretary of state and who's having a you know, who just barely cleared the Senate Foreign Relations Committee uh, on a basically on a party line vote. And will he will be confirmed with a couple of Democrats voting for him? I don't think. Look, there are plenty of things about I think Pompeo's views on a lot of things are troubling. Uh, his views on LGBTQ issues are bad. His views on Iran, I think, are bad. But Muslims. You, but you cannot 
like credibly argue that he isn't qualified, that he hasn't been a person who served the country well, and he's been a perfectly adequate uh, CIA director. And and I think the 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 fact that Democrats are are having such a fun time delaying him and making a fuss about him put, puts a little bit on them too. This, yeah, this, is a guy, this is a guy who who under normal circumstances just ought to go through on a you know 70-30 vote without a lot of fuss. I guess, although there is something odd about his appointment, right, which is usually secretaries of state have a more kind of august resume than Pompeo had before he became the CIA <laughs> director. He was like kind of a yeah. backbencher in Congress, yeah. right? So there's that. <laughs> but for, for, for a Trump administration for, official, he's, he's fucking Louis Brandeis. He's well, like, but, uh, you know, right? But then, exactly, like William the bar, Taft. The, yeah, the bar has shifted, has become lower. And but I don't. I think you're right. The Democrats are responding to the you know parts of his record that they find offensive. And in the scheme, like in the world in which we live, um, Pompeo will get through. And you know, Trump should be able to choose the person he wants for Secretary of State. Um, and yeah, I mean, I, I take your point with that. I don't know. What do you think, John? I generally think that, um, well, I got, I got two reactions. One um, is that what we're really trying to figure out here is what the what the standards are for these jobs and not right. to lose our sense of the standards in the pell-mell craziness of the moment. So the chaos of the White House creates a situation in which somebody not qualified for the job has all these issues which which capture our attention because they're nuts. Drunk driving in a car, passed out in a hotel, Fights inside, like handing out pills and being called the candy man. That's oh, all what's the problem? Attention grabbing. That's all attention grabbing. David's and, not and, impressed by any of that. <laughs> anyway, he especially on. sorry, 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 sorry. I didn't my mean my point is yeah. the, that's all. That's all attention grabbing. And right. what we have all been doing here is saying, wait a minute, there's this bigger issue here, and that this is what the job is. And he was totally unqualified for that. But you you find yourself trying to to pull the conversation out of the muck. And to what the actual standard should be for the job and anybody in it and whether they pass it. And that feels like what what we're you know, what's going on with Pompeo. And uh, and again, the standard keeps shifting. And sometimes you say, well, he is uh, he's he meets the standard and you realize the standard you, you're saying he meets is one that's even lower from where it uh, from where it actually should be. Um so, but then I have another point about Pruitt, which is that he's going to testify on Thursday and defend himself against these charges of uh, profligacy in his in his office. Um, and and uh, it, it, it strikes me that one of the most extraordinary things that's come out about him this week, he's going to uh, reportedly he's going to kind of blame his staff for some of the, the spending and things like that, which that's um, always, that's you know, which always is going to blame the staff for the sweetheart deal, where he bought this lobbyist house in Oklahoma, the only thing that Jim Inhofe seemed to. Um, be distressed about because it was in his the, home state. Sorry, but but what was but what he has to answer for is the is um, in Washington he had this he had this uh, apartment he was renting from the wife of a lobbyist and at, at, on good terms fifty dollars a day and he said that he had not met with the the husband of the woman from whom he was renting the apartment um, and in fact it turned out he had met with him and not only and it wasn't just a random meeting. Um, you know, on the sidelines of a soccer game, but it was a meeting um, and and the lobbyist was representing Smithfield, which had business before the EPA. Now, uh, so that was a direct contradiction to what he said about a central tenet of the Trump candidacy, which was that they were going to drain the swamp in Washington. Well, what is more swampy than a cozy relationship between a, a lobbyist for somebody who has business before an agency and the head of that agency? And so they said, well, this was a, 
this was a personal matter. It wasn't really about what was before the agency, but in the emails that CBS obtained uh, 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 from the lobbyist to Pruitt, um, it's clear what he's saying is you can trust this guy who's coming to this meeting with you. So um, because he's kind of sees the world the way you do on this matter that's before the EPA. So it was using the, the relationship that they had, the existing relationship they had to vouch for somebody who had business before the EPA. That's like, that's what that's what influence and access is all about. And that's the thing that the president supposedly came to Washington to fix. And so you have this situation where this isn't just like tiny little ticky tacky stuff. This is and that's also true of the, of the VA. The president campaigned repeatedly on the idea that his special understanding of the business world would make his administration uniquely able to solve the challenges inside the VA. And then he names somebody for the post who lacks the qualifications on the central thing that he said he was going to be able to fix about the VA. I mean, this is like goes to the heart of what he supposedly campaigned about. Let's end it there. That was an excellent ending. Hey, Slate Plus members and would-be members. You get bonus segments on the GabFest and other podcasts if you are a Slate Plus member, which is only $35 a year, which is a huge bargain. So on our Slate Plus segment today, we're actually going to um, plagiarize from the Culture Fest. They had a great Slate Plus segment, and we're going to do our version of it, which is what is the piece of culture, the book, the music, the film, that when you hear someone else loves it, it makes you love them? And also, what's Similarly, what's the piece of culture that when you hear someone else likes it, it makes you hate them? So if you go to slate.com slash GabFest plus, you can become a member and hear that segment and other segments. This episode of the GabFest is sponsored by Aura Frames. Are you ready to win Mother's Day? Cement your reputation as the best gift giver in your family. Give the moms in your life an Aura digital picture frame preloaded with decades of family photos. That mom will love looking back on childhood memories, seeing you what you're up to today, checking out grandkids, checking out cousins. And even better, with unlimited storage and an easy-to-use app, you can keep on updating your mom's frame with new photos so that it's a gift that keeps on giving. This is how I live in my family. I gave my mother an Aura frame. It was either for Mother's Day or for her birthday. She absolutely adores it. She's constantly hectoring me to update it with more photos, which I do. I also gave my girlfriend's mother in Aura Frame, and I hope she hectors my girlfriend to update it with more photos. But it is a present that will bring absolute delight to a mother in your life. And they have a great deal for Mother's Day. GapFest listeners can save on this perfect gift by visiting AuraFrames.com to get $30 off plus free shipping on their best-selling frame. That's A-U-R-A-Frames.com. Use code GABFEST at checkout to save. Terms and conditions apply. The Supreme Court Wednesday heard arguments in the case of the Trump travel ban. Strictly speaking, it heard arguments over the legality and constitutionality of the third Trump travel ban, which is levied on citizens of eight countries, or maybe it's seven now, six of them primarily Muslim, maybe five of them because Chad is out now. So I guess it's seven with five primarily Muslim countries. You'll remember that the first early 2017 ban, the chaotic ban, was uh, suspended by a judge pretty quickly, after, but not after causing a huge amount of distress at airports and in other places around the world. And a second ban also was uh, docked, was also 86'd by a federal judge. The third ban, which was prepared less hastily and was not so clearly targeted at Muslims, is hoping to skirt 
perhaps the biggest problem with it, which is the animus that President Trump demonstrated during his campaign towards Muslims and his his stated desire to ban Muslims from entering the U.S. while we straighten things out. So, Emily, um, what are the key legal issues in the case, both statutory and constitutional? Oh, the key legal issues. Well, this is about whether the president had the power to issue this kind of sweeping indefinite ban. So it's very much a case about separation of powers and presidential authority and the limits or not thereof, especially in the immigration arena. And then um, the relevant statute here is the Immigration and Nationality Act, which on the one hand um, uh, allows the executive branch to suspend the entry of a class of aliens. I really hate that word for immigrants, but that's the legal term. If the president finds that the entry, that their entry or the entry of any class of aliens into the United States would be detrimental to the interests of the United States. There's another part of this law, which we call the INA for short, um, And that part says that the government may not discriminate on the basis of nationality or religion. And so there's this question of which clause gets priority here um, in looking at the Trump travel ban. Um, And then, of course, you know, the sort of all important, in my view, subtext for this are Trump's promises of a Muslim ban during the campaign. And then more importantly, because like, let's set aside the campaign statements, maybe, but there are the things Trump has said in office about wanting to keep Muslims out of the country, tweeting virulently anti-Muslim videos, and the sort of sense we have that um, a kind of red meat to the base um, about Muslims and Muslim immigrants is truly what's fueling this ban, especially because although it's true that this uh, particular order was much more organized, it's still not clear what the government's national security rationale is for choosing these particular countries and then, you know, having such a blanket um, policy against admitting their residents. Right. So so the conservative justice is certainly found a lot to uh, chew on yesterday. They, for example, were very big on the, the point that how long do we have to hold the president's, president's statements against him? How long does the, do the things he say in the campaign have any bearing on what he does as president? Or is there a, basically a break and he gets a clean, fresh start? Um, and even if, even if he has demonstrated some animus as president, does he get a break as long as the, his cabinet and, and people in his administration have legitimate reason to think this ban will have a beneficial effect on national security. I mean, I think that's one big thing that they that they focused on. Yeah, maybe we should start with that and then move on. I mean, I thought that Neil Katyal, who was arguing for the state of Hawaii and the other challengers of the ban, had a really good answer to that, which is like, well, the president could disclaim these statements he'd made. And one of the conservative justices said, okay, well, if he disclaimed it, then, you know, two days later, could he issue the um, travel ban order? And Katyal said, yes. And what seemed to me important about that moment is that Trump is, and this is why I find this case so, um, I I do, I find it infuriating. Trump is getting to have it both ways, right? He both gets to be this um, anti-Muslim president who is, you know, signaling all these things to his base. And he gets to have like all the trappings of regular presidential authority where he gets to pretend that this is about national security. And that point that Katyal made about the about not disclaiming is like the perfect way to capture that. All he has to do is be like, 
no, I renounce those views. Now I'm doing this for national security reasons. But he hasn't done that. The other one of the other points that the justice has made is that if you want, if this is a Muslim ban, it's a pretty bad Muslim ban. That it's a very small number of countries that are majority Muslim are affected. It's only eight percent of Muslims in the world live in those countries. Uh, so therefore, it's it's unreasonable to think of it as a Muslim ban. And of course, it also encompasses North Korea and Venezuela, although those were clearly t- tossed in as a sop. But yeah, well, they were tacked on later. Yeah. 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 Well, did you guys find that point convincing, that way of framing the question? Which way? The one, what you just said. Like, if you were, yeah, this was Justice Alito's big point. Like, if you were trying to, and and, Noel Francisco, the Solicitor General, if you were trying to, you know, ban Muslims, you would go ban all the Muslims from, hmm, Saudi Arabia, allies of ours, where we would never do that. Right. What I find it, I guess, is that, that I'm sure that this is, this has no real national security justification. They haven't right. come up with anything credible. Um, they they went back knowing that they had to come up with a justification, and they manufactured something, which I don't even think they've ever made public. But they've just they've just sort of said we have a finding that this is will benefit national security, and no one knows what it is, and we're supposed to we're supposed to just accept it. On the other hand, I'm pretty troubled by the idea that the uh, the courts are going to tell the president and tell the administration. Uh, they're going to they're they're going to go second guess uh, findings that an administration is going to make. I mean, with this administration, it's less troubling, but I just like don't like it as a president. I'm really troubled by Congress's failure to be involved here. That's the the the, the troubling part. Like this is an area where Congress could very easily come in and clarify and tell the president, you know, here or you pass laws that say here's what we want you to do or not want you to do. And of course, Congress is unwilling to do it, and it gives. It gives the executive enormous amount of latitude to make decisions like this, and an absent, an absent a legislative, uh, absent legislative action. I don't think that what the Trump administration is doing is is out of bounds. I think it's completely immoral and criminal and wrongheaded. Not criminal. I think it's completely immoral and wrongheaded. But the 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 solution is basically political, which is that you vote them out of office if you think it's wrong. I don't think that what they're doing is on its face like goes against any laws of the country or is completely out of bounds. I just think it's wrong. Now, did the court, Emily, um, and I apologize for not having, um, uh, not knowing this, but did the court raise that issue? Because obviously the court pays attention to whether the president is overstepping his bounds and the White House originally in defending this, we all remember the, the, the slightly uh, amusing way in which uh, Stephen Miller defended it, which is that on issues of perceived national security importance, uh, no one anywhere in any court or in Congress has a right to ever question the president, which is obviously not the way it goes. But um, did the courts wrestle with that idea of whether the White House or whether the president was uh, overstepping his bounds? Did the court, I mean, not the courts. Yes. I mean, I think in some ways it was sort of framed more in the first way David put it, which is would the court be overstepping its bounds to question the president's authority, right? And there is a lot, I mean, the more abstract, the more kind of 30,000 foot view you take of this case, the better it is for Trump. Because then you're talking about these lofty principles of not just presidential power, but the authority the president has to protect the country. Um, And yet we know here that the, um, we don't have any public record of real findings about why the government thinks that restricting travel and immigration 
to this extent from these countries is really necessary. And we're being asked essentially to take it on faith. And so to me, the idea that, you know, the Supreme Court couldn't find some narrow way to say, wait a second, this president in this instance has gone too far in light of this shadow of anti-Muslim prejudice and also this sort of continued lack of real um, public evidence that this is necessary. That just seems like of course, the court could find its way to writing that opinion if it wanted to. Your 30,000-foot point, Emily, is a really good one. And when you get into the specifics of what's actually happening, it's so dire. We know the moral wrong that we're committing. There have been 44 Syrian refugees admitted into the United States since October of the last, what is that, six months. Yes. Only 11 in 2018. There are hundreds of thousands, even millions of Syrians, the overwhelming majority of whom are people who are simply victims of one of the worst wars of modern history and who have no recourse and would be perfectly good contributors to American society. And even if they're not that good contributors to American society, they are people in terrible suffering and need. And the idea that we as a nation cannot welcome them in, in significant numbers is disgusting. And also we've seen this huge drop in tourism. We're seeing an enormous drop in applications for student visas. Uh, the, the the closing off of America by the Trump administration, partly through bureaucratic channels and, and policy measures, but also through rhetoric and and their vile, vile rhetoric towards people who aren't American is is a problem here. And that's what people need to go out and vote on. I just I guess I I think that we have a system where there's enormous latitude for a president to make decisions about things. And and I I would rather have Congress making law to restrain the president or the people restraining the president with, by voting in a new president than I would having courts stepping in every time people are upset about something. Fair enough, although I don't think this is like every time people are upset about something. I mean, the other thing I just feel like we need to mention is Korematsu. I mean, we have this stain on the Supreme Court and on the presidency because of Franklin Roosevelt um, in the order to, you know, detain Japanese people of Japanese descent during World War II. The Supreme Court signed off on that in the name of presidential authority and national security. It's this completely discredited kind of horrifying precedent that has never been formally overruled, but that we all want to think we understand was immoral and is supposed to be part of America's past, not its present. Um, and there's this sort of irony, small irony here. Neil Katyal, who argued for Hawaii and the Challengers, as I mentioned, used to be the acting solicitor general under Barack Obama. And when he was in that role, he issued a statement. Um, you know, not he can't formally overturn Korematsu, but he was acknowledging that it is a stain on America's past. And we are kind of that hovers over the court here, whether the justices like it or not. Sorry, I want to make one final point. There is one place where I think legal intervention is certainly justified, which is that un even under the terms of the ban, there's supposed to be a notion of waivers that yes. people, that certain refugees under certain circumstances ought to be, or, or immigrants or people seeking visas ought to be allowed to get waivers. And th that decision can be made by the State Department on a case-by-case -case basis. And uh, what's clearly happening is that those waivers are not being granted, that they're the, that's basically a blanket denials. And so that effectively we are completely banning people with, you know, almost just a, just a minuscule number of exceptions, two 
two by one count, two people who've gotten by these. This Although the solicitor general you said, said there were actually 440 people in argument yesterday. So it'll be interesting to see what that figure really amounts to. But I guess what my point is that if, in fact, this the government has set up a process and is not fulfilling that process, then that seems to me a standard for a moment for legal intervention and, and action if they are not abiding by the, the terms of their own policy, which I don't think they are. Well, I mean, we should just end by saying it seemed clear from oral argument that the Supreme Court is going to allow the Trump administration to have this ban that, you know, all the arguments we've been making, the unsettling arguments did not seem to be um, winning the day for the five conservative justices. So uh, that is a likely outcome. One uh, just Side note here in the context of what the president says out loud and how it affects things in the courts, Jim Shuto of CNN uh, is reporting that on Thursday when the president went on Fox and Friends and said that his personal lawyer, Michael Cohen, only did a tiny, tiny fr little fraction of his legal work, the um, New York prosecutors uh, asking for expedited review of the seized documents from Cohen's offices and home have used those comments from the Fox and Friends interview to say that Cohen's claim that his work for Donald Trump was so voluminous that it will require a long and complicated process of trying to untangle uh, what's protected by privilege, privilege and what's not. They are saying, well, if it was just a tiny, tiny little fraction of what Donald Trump uh, needs from lawyers, then obviously it won't take that long to review the documents. So it's one, uh, yet another way in which uh, uh, the president's public statements are... Um, affecting his legal standing. Although I and will say- And causing trouble for the people who are around him and continuing to work with him. I, I would say in Trump's defense that a tiny, tiny, tiny fraction of Trump's legal work is still probably an enormous amount because he has causes so much legal distress everywhere. Well, also about the word legal. I mean, it doesn't seem like legal work was a lot of what Michael Cohen was doing, though he did draft poorly draft a contract. Well, and given that two of his in interactions with with people who made these, at least we know two, maybe more, then he was really a specialized, uh, a specialized case. Although I was watching, I was looking at that press conference that President Trump held um, in New Hampshire about uh, Barack Obama not being born in the United States. And it, Cohen was at that uh, press conference, which I had forgotten. That was a long time ago. All right, let's uh, wrap this topic up. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it... <clears throat> a real POS. You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com system. For the last year in between the Facing the Nation and the CBS This Morning and the Whistle Stop podcast and the Gab Fest and the kid raising and all the brushing of hair and brushing of teeth, the unstoppable force that is John Dickerson was working on a titanic piece for The Atlantic. That story has just come out, a cover story about the hardest job in the world, the American presidency. Uh, this is a concept album that will be familiar, somewhat familiar to Gab Fest <laughs> listeners, because it hits some of the themes that John has uh, strummed out over the years on the Gab Fest. And it is an enormous, important, and persuasive piece of work. John, I give you the next 45 seconds to sum summarize the work of the last year. Yeah, thank you. Uh, Why is I the presidency impossible? Right. Hardest, hardest job in the world is, I think, a better framing than 
impossibility of the presidency. I mean, the presidency is impossible, but we can only have one president at a time. And so how do they best manage that impossible job? There are ways that the job has gotten significantly harder uh, in the recent period. Um, and then and this causes some of the difficulties we have in our politics today. But three big ones would be the change in the national security picture since 9-11, the supine nature of Congress, which we've already talked about in this episode and, and talk about all the time, slash the rise of uh, partisan politics, and also then the change in the way we elect presidents and uh, with a uh, an emphasis on performance um, over other things. Um, so per- that Performativeness, be, not performance and all. You know what I mean? Like right, doing well. Performative, per- performative. Doing, doing well on stage, yeah. yeah. Um, uh, and they're all, you know, that's not the whole list, but that's, um, those are three big reasons, um, that are a part of it. And then the piece ends with an attempt to say those presidents who've done well in various parts of this, or people who've thought about the presidency and would prescribe, uh, fixes to it, you know, and then talk about possible solutions to the unwieldiness of the job. Is this a piece about President Trump. In what ways is it a piece about President Trump? And in yeah, what ways is it's, it not a piece about it, President Trump? Right. Well, it you know, that was something in the writing of it that we really, 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 really worked on a lot. Uh, John Swansburg I thought you finessed my, it quite well. God love you. Thank you. John Swansburg was my um, editor on this, and we worked on it a great deal because I think, as we say, as, as I say in the piece, that President Trump clearly elevates a lot of these questions. And depending on where you sit, uh, depends on where you stand. I mean, obviously for his supporters, he's blowing through the norms of the office the way you should. And he's got to, you know, crack this sclerotic system and the many, and he's exposing many of the horrible parts of the presidency that make it impossible to be efficient. Then if you are a critic, you say, well, this long piece, which has described how complicated the presidency is, um, is like saying the presidency is like brain surgeon. So, boy, we better have a brain surgeon in there. Um, and so by detailing the complexity of the office, uh, the president's critics would see this as um, an explanation for why the current president uh, is not up to the task. And also part of the piece also talks about the myth of the idea that you can have a businessman come into the office and just kind of whip everything into shape. Um, I think there is a third option which is available, which is that if you see a tweet that says the cover line about the impossibility of the president, you can, without actually reading the uh, 14,000 words of the piece, think that it is an attempt to make excuses um, for the president. But the idea was to try to look at the presidency and and break free of the idea that each president equals the presidency. There is this institution that is, you know, well over 200 years old that has grown and changed and gotten out of shape and 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 sometimes to the great benefit of the country, it has changed. Other times, uh, and in the current moment, there are these parts of it that need to be kind of stuffed back into form. And the misreading is in itself a kind of, though this is not the intent of some who were critical upon seeing uh, the title and not reading it, it is in a sense uh, um, praise for the article because one of the things we talk about in the article is the inability to see past the current moment in politics and how everything is essentially sorted through partisanship and team allegiance, um, which is a lot of where uh, that reaction comes from, which is um, anything that suggests the presidency is hard is somehow an excuse for the current occupant. Um, and that was really not the uh, the intent was to look at the presidency itself. This president clearly from the lead, if you see it, um, is, uh, is addressed, but it's really looking at the um, 
the whole shebang. I wanted to talk about the last section in which you made a number of suggestions about how to make the job easier and less impossible and and help presidents structurally be in a better position. And it struck me reading them that you were in the mode of exhorting. Like they were things like urging more centrist candidates to run in the primaries um, or urging us to change our unreasonable expectations. And I wonder if you feel like there is more of a real um, structural change we could make as opposed to asking for the system to produce a different outcome because right. people are just like thinking about it differently, which uh, which in other parts of the piece, I think you say are unlikely. Yeah, because behavior is so hard to change. Well, I think right. systematic things you could change, for example. So one of the things is we've got to find a way to get the partisan lock out of our politics because the partisanship does two things it both affects the selection of presidents uh, lifting people through the nominating process who are able to appeal to the passions of the most um, ideologically strong people in parties and that that ends up being a difficult place to govern from but it also affects congress which is you know again for people who didn't get a chance to read it a huge chunk of the piece is about the fact that uh, one of the reasons the presidency is so much harder is because the other branch of government is in is receding. As Dennis McDonough, the chief of staff for President Obama, said, anytime you talk about the presidency, you have to talk about, or any time you talk about the difficulty in the presidency, you have to start with the difficulty with Congress. Right. Well, why right. is Congress difficult? Congress is difficult because, and this bedevils uh, Republicans more than Democrats, um, but it's because the primary process weeds out centrist candidates and you have parties where um, where the purity tests um, in the in the parties require people to be less flexible. Nobody's incentivizing compromise um, and the system used to do that in the past. Well, if you believe that, then one thing people would fix on is they would say, well, you have to change the role of money in politics um, because it has too much influence and it creates the conditions um, that make the parties this way. So that would be uh, that would be one specific thing you could do. The argument about having more centrist candidates in primaries is another. It's not structurally changed, but the idea there, just for those who heard it fly by, is uh, Joe Califano, who served Reagan and and um, and LBJ, argues that if that if you get more moderate candidates participating in primaries, you will. Um, uh, sorry, moderate voters participating in primaries, then you you would have a, a group of voters who would ne not necessarily vote for the candidate who was most uh, adherent to the um, extremities of the ideological spectrum. Now, of course, that that a lot of these suggestions require um, group behavior, including group behavior on the part of the media, that is just basically really a lot against um, a lot of uh, our instincts as a country right now. Um, two points. One, I actually don't believe that money in politics has anything to do with partisan divide. I think the partisan divide is essentially independent of that. I'm not saying that they're, well, the money in politics doesn't have hugely pernicious effects, but I don't think that's the source of hyper-partisanship or even particularly a fuel of it. I think well, that, that a lot of these candidates do well. They run insurgent campaigns that actually aren't money dependent. Well, that, okay, so that's a really good point. That's true. But the, the money that is raised and that goes to keeping, um, uh, I mean, two things. One, um, how do you raise money? You raise money by scaring the bejesus out of people. Um, and you do that by making really severe claims about the other side or about values issues 
which tend to be on the ideological ends of the of the parties. Um, and so the need to raise money um, then is encourages a whole set of behaviors that are very extreme in order to keep raising the money. Um, secondarily, um, and this is not related to raising money, but the rise of interest groups that participate in politics and who keep who need to keep themselves funded and need to keep raising money for their own institutions do so by making sure that the debates are set always at the extremes because if they are that makes it easier mm-hmm. to raise money but, so those are two of the things that I would say would lead to the to the more partisan atmosphere but I, but but they're definitely not the only one as we as we outlined in the I, there, one other point that I was thinking about I was sort of asking myself why is it being president harder than being prime minister of Great Britain or chancellor of Germany and part of it of course is that the United States is a greater country than either of those, and it's a much bigger country. But part of it is that in contrast to a lot of the European democracies, and even to a country like China, say, that we don't have a very strong civil service tradition. Or we have a mm-hmm. strong civil service tradition, but we don't have the same kind of built-in permanent government in the way that a lot of other developed nations do. And so that when there are transitions in government power in the United States, it actually, there's all this patronage. There's a huge shift in what government actually does day to day in ways that are much less extreme in other countries. And that's that's because we just, we have weaker bureaucracies and, right. and more political appointees. And I wonder if there's a, I wonder if there's a way to, to weaken patronage and make civil service stronger, which is, of course, well, runs counter to everything that conservatives want these days, so it'll never happen. But that's something I thought about. That's the structural kind of change that Emily was seeking for in her first question. And that, and I talk about that. Um, and John uh, Diulio has an entire book he wrote about this, which is like in praise of the bureaucracy. And the idea essentially is short. Um, and what I talk about is shrink the number of political appointees from 4,000 um, down to a much smaller number, and then actually make the political appointee process easier so they don't have to go through Congress uh, and have the kind of holdup. Right. But then you would obviously quickly have to add to that that the ability to kick them out of office would be made easier too. In other words, so you get a bum apple in, in a position, there's got to be a way that they wouldn't be protected just by the majority party if they happen to be in the administration of the majority party. If you're going to lower the standards for getting them in, not lower the standards, but lower the amount of time it takes to get them in their posts. Because one of the problems of the presidency is that because you don't have as many bureaucrats who have the expertise and who have the knowledge of the issue, and a lot of these issues are super, super complex, and they've gotten more complex, and there's some great scholarship, this book Meltdown I like so much. Um, there's a great, a lot of scholarship about the fact that the more complex we've made things, the more we've created these um, catastrophic, the possibility of catastrophic events. Um, with this increased complexity. So if you sh- if you increase the bureaucracy that I would have more, more expertise uh, potentially to handle these kinds of things, and if you made it easier to get through the confirmation process, again, not getting rid of accountability, just getting the team on the field faster, it would make it so that presidents could in a in a functioning presidency, and this obviously wouldn't have helped with the with the Trump presidency because he has fired people so, uh, often and um, also a lot of the jobs aren't filled, but in somebody who sought to run the presidency in a more traditional sense, you would have everybody kind of in their jobs, able to start coordinating and working each with each other. And that might, uh, for those who believe that that would lead to good outcomes, uh, that that would mean people would be more coordinated and actually be able to get actually on the field. You can make a really good argument, as Max Steyer does. The Trump presidency still isn't really on the field. 
uh, because there's so many jobs that are either unfulfilled or where people are still getting up to speed because the previous guy is now gone. My question is, did you... So you're super engaged with this research and thinking about it creatively. Do you feel optimistic? Like, does it make you want to roll up your sleeves or does it make you feel like, oh, my God, this is like this crashing, monstrous weight on the country and it's going to like pull us into I the ocean? I feel alternatively both. I feel um, there are a lot of people who think about these issues and how to make them better. And if you look at the Romney um, transition document, of what what Mitt Romney and his team were trying to do. There were, at one time, like 600 people worked on this. One of the suggestions in the book is that we should allow candidacies to set up essentially shadow governments early during the campaign even if, and and not and not suggest they're measuring the drapes, but actually use the the transition and how they're uh, preparing for it as a way to measure whether they're fit for the job. Because what's the job? It's anticipating big, complicated stuff and how you come up with solutions for it. So allow candidacies once they get the nomination to set up a shadow government to run the the exercises that the Romney folks ran about how you coordinate. Because what people don't realize when they campaign and what they find out when they govern is there are all of these collateral effects when you make decisions. The president is still engaged in a tussle over his travel ban is a perfect example of the collateral effects of hastily made decisions. Um, and uh, if you look at what the Romney team did, you would be uh, made optimistic by the idea that like every other human endeavor since the Enlightenment, the product of reason and uh, considered thinking while not perfect and while not eliminating all grief and sorrow from human existence, nevertheless does over time lead to positive outcomes. And that was the thing upon which the Romney transition was was created. When you talk to people who were engaged in the Trump transition, it is basically the opposite of that. So the the, the idea that there are people systematically thinking about how to make the, the, the uh, system better, that gives you optimism. I think also in the reaction from people who are engaged as citizens, there have been a great deal and great number of people who um, have reacted positively to this and to the idea of trying to step back from the current cut and thrust and the inability because of the the shredding of norms that's happening in front of our eyes that keeps us rightly focused on, you know, what the captain is doing in the captain's tower, that there is still a big ship of the presidency that has gotten a lot of barnacles and that, you know, even people misunderstand it. Some people want it to be a kayak. Some people want it to be a barge. And engaging in that conversation is necessary so that we don't repeat the the mistakes that may have got us to the current situation that we're in. Um, or if people think this current situation is just peachy, that then allow us to know why this situation is better relative to the norms and standards that have existed in the, in the presidency beforehand. To the extent that people have gotten that, both of whom support the current president and those who don't, that's incredibly uh, encouraging. So those are two places of optimism. John, one last question here. Given all that you've learned about the presidency, given all the challenges that you've outlined, who in the American scene do you think is well-prepared for the job? Who is somebody who could take this job and and do it adequately and competently given all these constraints? Well, I have an answer which has a big caveat. Um, so we don't really know. I mean, it's both the disaster and the genius of the American system that there is no kind of test that you have to take for the presidency. Um, the genius being Abraham Lincoln, which is that if you looked at him on paper and, and the kind of paper test that I have, you know, either implicitly or explicitly um, advocated for, you would say, eh, he doesn't make it, you know, and he was 
uh, one of, if not the greatest president. There are other presidents, of course, who um, might look like they had qualifications and weren't a great president. So you have to have lots and lots of humility. My argument is basically engaging in this question is good for on its own terms and um, brings us closer to the way the government actually works and, and focuses on solutions, all of which is good. Not that we can achieve some sort of uh, perfect answer here. I think that some of the Mitt Romney as a presidential candidate, obviously leaving aside people's, you know, ideological preferences on policy, he had two things that it seemed to me were useful in the in the in the presidency. One was he had run an organization beforehand. And there is some benefit, although as I point out in the piece, there's also a huge downside to coming from having run a large organization, which is having successfully done so you develop patterns and blindnesses that unless you come into the presidency with a huge dose of humility and say, yes, I have patterns and thoughts about ways to do things, but this is going to be super different. There's a business book uh, called What Got You What Got You Here Won't Get You There. I think that's the title of it, which is basically everything that got you to this position you now, in a sense, have to forget because you have a new set of challenges which you need to use for your... So a person who has skill in the private sector or running a large organization in the public sector has to basically forget some of the lessons they've learned so that they're not blind to what they don't know. But secondly, in the specific case of Mitt Romney, part of his job was taking over companies that all had different um, contours to them. And so he had to learn quickly about things that were not similar to what he had just done before. And so that's pretty good training. But again, as I said, that is in sort of the presidency is the abstract. You could imagine a situation in which events that um, took place would require or would overemphasize one channel of the presidency. Perhaps you'd need a great communicator because the nation is going through some huge emergency and huge national rending of its soul. And the communicative aspect, which I think has been overemphasized in the presidency for that particular emergency might be crucial and required. Certainly the current deficiencies of President Trump as a national orator have exacerbated some of the the problems in the nation that he might even want to try to fix, but because he lacks the tools, he can't. So I don't want to overstate the case for Romney, um, but I do have, in an attempt to fumble at your answer, that's the one I'm giving you. All right. So the piece is The Hardest Job in the World. It's by Jean Dickerson in The Atlantic. It'll be uh, both on newsstands and it's already up online. A collision between a Chinese jet and an American spy plane. He came and rammed into our left wing. With relations increasingly strained, what are the chances of things spinning out of control? The Western world was asleep. I'm Gordon Carrera. I'll be exploring the friction in this most important of relationships and asking, has the West taken its eye off the ball? You cannot ignore China. From BBC Radio 4, this is Shadow War, China and the West. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. Okay, let's go to cocktail chatter. When you were the president and you've had just a terrible day, when you're Ronnie Jackson and it's just a regular day and you're having a, you're having seven cocktails. Uh, no, I'm sure he doesn't do that. That's not fair to poor Dr. Jackson. What will you be chattering about, John Dickerson? I, uh, for the purposes of the series that I have um, been doing um, for uh, CBS with the producer uh, Kira Cleveland um, on paying attention was um, went to Tulsa where I um, checked out um, some scholarship about floating and um, sensory deprivation and did a piece about it this week and then came back to um, New York and went to a place called um, in Brooklyn um, 
uh, called Lyft, where you can float, and you basically float in salinated water, um, and it's sensory deprivation. And it is very cool, and I encourage anybody um, who is uh, interested in meditation or um, uh, or just weird experiences to go try it out. Man, I don't want to do that. Is it? Are you enclosed? There's something about you. Totally are enclosed. So Absolutely the one when not. I did it at Tulsa. Never. Nope. When I did it, <laughs> when I did it in Tulsa, um, the tank was um, it, it was it was a huge open tank, um, and uh, so you know you're in a big room, um, but it um, you're you're not. It, it's not you're not like closed off. Um, and that's because it's a brain. It's a they're studying the brain science of what happens to you. And um, when I did it in Brooklyn, you're in a, like a little pod, which is exacerbates the feeling of claustrophobia you may be um, you may be talking about or feeling. Just cannot, would not. Emily, would you do that? I'm going to say no. Emily, what's your cocktail chatter? My cocktail chatter this week comes from one of our listeners. Um, I got a tweet from Halima Marcus telling me to look at a story on electric lit. It's by Matthew Burkhold, who's a law and literature professor. Um, and it's about the women authors who judges tend to cite in their judicial opinions. And it's really this lovely meditation on Jane Austen. So it turns out that there are very few female authors who regularly or even at all get cited in um, court opinions. But Jane Austen is um, strategically deployed and, and for quite a delightful reason. Um, according to Professor Burkhold, it's because she's so good at talking about like the complications and intricacies of life. Um, <laughs> so, um, so I like this part in particular that um, she gets cited as a reminder that appearances can be deceiving. So there was a California judge in a malpractice case who said something about how sometimes you have to have the whole story to get an accurate picture of events. The seemingly haughty and prideful Darcy turned out to be a pretty nice guy by the end of Pride and Prejudice. <laughs> that judge happened to misspell Austin's name. But I think the sentiment is great and the idea that there are just these incredibly iconic um, characters from Jane Austen and that you could imagine them caught up in litigation because they're so familiar to us. Um, I really like that. So um, electric lit, uh, and we will post the link. My chatter today is going back to the theme of shamelessness, which I talked a little bit about last week. We have not talked on the show. Maybe we should talk about the most appalling Senate candidate in the country who uh, who is not getting enough attention. There's a Roy Moore level horror unfolding in West Virginia where the Republican nominee for Senate to face uh, Democrat Joe Manchin in the fall may end up being Don Blankenship. He is a coal baron. He's a former CEO of Massey Energy. He went to prison for a year after he was convicted in some mine charge related to mine safety after, of course, one of his own mines had an accident that killed 29 miners, an accident that many people think was either caused or was not prevented because of Massey's very loose attitude towards mine safety, an attitude, that, a looseness that Blankenship certainly encouraged. Blankenship is just a piece of work. Uh, he his, his election ads are all about the Obama judges and officials who prosecuted him. He has not made a financial disclosure, even though that's illegal, because he realized there's no penalty against him for not filing. He's like, I don't want people to know what I have. And so he's not bothered to make a financial disclosure form. 
he, uh, despite the fact that he's running West Virginia, his chief residence is in Las Vegas, not in West Virginia. He's talked a lot about his admiration for authoritarianism. He's actually on parole while he's running. Um, and he's a nightmare. There's a May 8th primary. It's He's not leading in the polls there, but it's one of these things where, where you can imagine there's enough anger in the Republican primary electorate that Blankenship, who is running as a Trump acolyte, might win that nomination. And then, and then Republicans will put themselves in a very bad position to hold on to a seat that they, or to take a seat that they ought to win because Manchin is easily the most vulnerable Democrat uh, running for re-election because he's in a, a very red state. So uh, Blankenship is a nightmare and and uh, no, it would really be terrible for the country if he became a senator. He's a, just a bad person with a bad record and he's a criminal. And man, it bums me out that such a person is getting as far as he is. That's our show for today. The Political Gap Fest is produced today and today only by Jason DeLeon because Jocelyn is in Alaska uh, and she can't produce from Alaska. I mean, maybe she could, but why Why produce from Alaska when you can go whale watching? And uh, Jason will have help from Danielle Hewitt. Our researcher is Izzy Road. You can follow us on Twitter at, at @slategabfest. Please uh, send us some suggestions about things to do in St. Louis. For Emily Bazelon and John Dickerson, I'm David Plotz. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you in St. Louis next week. Get tickets. Still a few tickets left at slate.com slash live for that May 2nd show, Wednesday, May 2nd. Yeah.